Welcome into The Harvest, a podcast dedicated to helping you live and share your faith in the everyday places of life. I'm Andrew Stroud, and on today's show, I'm joined by Todd Bolsinger, Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation at Fuller Seminary. Todd is also the author of Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. Does it seem to you like the church is losing ground here in the West? Even though the terrain of our culture and society has radically shifted over the past 50 to 60 years, the church has stayed static and continues to operate in much the same way as it has for the past 400 years. Todd is an expert at adaptive leadership and believes the church has to adjust for the new realities we are facing. He believes we can learn a lot from explorers Lewis and Clark about how to navigate in uncharted territory. This is a really fun episode, and I know those of you who are in the harvest will get a lot of value. Also, make sure you check the show notes because there's a great free resource that Todd has made available to our community. Enjoy the conversation with Todd Bolsinger. Well, Todd, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, so I was introduced to your work by a friend earlier this year who sent me a copy of your book, Canoeing the Mountains, and I had not heard of the book before. He actually told me about it and said, you've got to read this book because he knew some of what we've been doing with Into the Harvest and felt like the things you were communicating in that book were, were right in line. And honestly, I don't know how quickly I would have gotten around to ordering the book because probably like you, I've got a list of books that I'm reading that seems to never get shorter. But he actually took the initiative to mail me the book. He bought it for me and sent it to me, and I'm so glad he did. It's a, it's a great book, and he was right. Uh, I think it has a lot to speak to what we think is happening in the church today and what we want to encourage God's people to be aware of. So we're going to talk more about that book and its themes in a moment. But for now, if you would, give our listeners a thumbnail sketch of your faith journey, what led you to write the book, and uh, what you're passionate about these days. Yeah, thanks, thanks. And I'm always grateful to people who are willing to give my book as a gift to anybody. That's always a good thing. It is so, a good thing. Yeah. Um, so so the, the uh, quick backstory um, thumbnail of my life is that when I was 23 years old, I was working for Youth for Christ doing youth evangelism and campus life clubs. I got asked to become the college director at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles. Um, they brought me on their staff and said, um, hey, we think you're going to run out of those little youth talks you do uh, by Christmas. So we're going to send you to seminary and um, we're going to pay for it. And I, everywhere I go in the country and every time I talk about it, I talk about Hollywood Presbyterian and their investment in me when I was nothing more than some brashness and enthusiasm. Um, and I ran out of those youth talks by Thanksgiving. So I was thrilled that they sent me to seminary. I ended up coming to Fuller. I got an MDiv and I went on and got a PhD. And I ended up... Um, because um, they paid for my master's degree, my wife and I could afford my PhD one class at a time. So I crammed a four-year PhD into nine years while I, <laughs> while I was busy doing um, pastoral work. Yeah. And after 10 years at Hollywood, I became the senior pastor in San Clemente at San Clemente Presbyterian Church and was there for 17 years. And then uh, five years ago, was asked to come on the staff of the seminary here at Fuller as a vice president and basically part of the larger um, project about rethinking theological education in a rapidly changing world. And so I've had two roles here and now I lead the, what's called the leadership formation division, um, stands alongside our graduate division as our work that we're doing uh, with, um, we say our graduate division works with students and we work with learners and our graduate degree division gives people degrees who need degrees to to follow their vocation and we work with people for life and giving them training and formation um, so that they can continue to live out their vocation so that's what i do here and it's great work and it's been really fun um, so i ended up writing canoeing the mountains because i went through a time where the church had been when i was at the pastor of the church it had been very successful for a while in ways that we measure but there was this palpable dissatisfaction i would say by my leadership team and i couldn't figure out why and I realized after a long set of conversations that I needed to learn to lead in a different way in a changing world. And that's what led me to where I am today. So, so tell me a little bit more about that season of life where you had that realization. Um, how long did that last and, and what drove it, I guess? Yeah. What, what were some of the, the things that sparked that? Yeah. So, so um, in... Um, 
In 2006, 2007, when right before the economic collapse, right, we, we went through a year where we had finished 10 years of growth in the life of our church, 10 years of growth. We were actually featured in a book on Presbyterian churches that had 10 consecutive years of growth. And every so every marker was good. But as I said, there was this kind of malaise that was happening in my leadership team, and I couldn't quite figure out why it was. And um, and so I ended up asking a consultant to come in and ask some questions. Just help me figure out why mm-hmm. we're doing well in every marker, except that people's morale and energy for the mission seems to be dissipating. And that came at a time when we had a huge surplus in financially and everything was going well. But what we realized was people were beginning to struggle under believing that their work and their own personal discipleship and their own personal contribution to the kingdom was ultimately about um, a person, me, and a church, an institution, and there was a mm. kind of a hunger for a greater um, missional expression, if you will. Yes. And I didn't. And so what I realized was um, that the way I had been trained to lead was really good for the end of Christendom, for a world in which. Um, there was a kind of a home court advantage for Christianity. Right. And that as the world was changing, more and more people were seeing opportunities for mission that were fell outside of the normal way of thinking about church in some ways. We can talk more about that if you want. And, and it began to make me realize I needed to learn to lead in a totally different way. So it was a big challenge. And, it's a, and what I've realized is it's not a challenge. It, it, what I learned is that's not a quick fix. That's an that's that's an adaptive challenge that requires a reformation of an entire organizational culture and of the work of leaders to think about the way in which you hold on to your core values by by but at the same time be willing to adapt to a changing world so it's a different kind of leadership style and how much of that did you get a chance to begin to implement when you were at uh, San Clemente yeah so so i was there um, for another 7 years and it was really wonderful and um, and it was a big transition and so um, but then i ended up um, and i ended up leading a leadership process for our deno- for our presbytery and one for our denomination and um, and some of those the presbytery one was really invigorating and interesting and the denominational one was really hard and I experienced a two and a half years of work go down in flames I wanna, because I want to ask you about that yeah because <laughs> a whole group of leaders you know people will talk about wanting change but then will be resistant to it so it helped me understand that you know even in the scriptures it's hard to talk about leadership because there's actually not good models of leadership in the scriptures. Um, one of my professors, uh, the, my colleagues here at the school says, the only theology of leadership you have in the Bible is when God is leading, things go well. And when humans lead, they don't. So it's yes. a pretty negative view of leadership, right? But what we do have in the scripture is a really robust um, theology of management. Hmm. It's just not called management. It's called stewardship. Right. So when you think about what most of us were trained for, and this is a very important skill, is how to take the things entrusted to our care and faithfully hand them over to the next generation. Yes. How to take our theological traditions, our resources, a group of people. You know, so when I became pastor of the church, the very first day I was a pastor, I baptized a group of teenagers. Hmm. And 17 years later, some of them were leaders in the church. Hmm. One of them was an elder in the church that I was in. Um, that's that's faithfulness. So, so management is about taking people where they need to go and want to go. And if you're... If you do so well, they thank you. Leadership is taking people where they need to go and resist going. Right. And so they often get angry at you. So see Moses, right? right. See the entire <laughs> wilderness experience. So the, the what I had to learn was to help people think through that in a rapidly changing world, and we needed more leadership built on good management but that most of us confuse the difference between the two and had to learn to think about that differently. Yeah, there's a, you quote, you have a quote in your book about leadership being um, the ability to disappoint your people yeah, at a yeah. rate that they can handle. Yeah, yeah. So, Ron, so Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky from Harvard, who wrote the book on adaptive leadership, said, uh, leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. Yes. And so it reminds us that leadership is always fraught with working, loving, and caring for a group of people who are going to resist the change because it's very human to resist change. Yes. And so you're having to work with people who are experiencing, I mean, another way to think about this that they talk about is 
change. People don't resist change. They resist loss. And so you're helping people navigate loss while helping them move into a new future. Right. I can't wait to talk about that. So towards the end of that time is when you wrote the book. You started putting together these thoughts and Mm -hmm. and putting it in writing. And you used the the story of Lewis and Clark and their Mm -hmm. expedition to find uh, a Northwest Passage as a framework that sort of runs all throughout the book. Why is it, uh, tell us how you came to view that as uh, a good parallel for what we're facing in the church Mm -hmm. today. Yeah, so it, it, so you know, I was a preacher, right? So I was a pastor at the time, and I was speaking, and so I needed a good illustration. And I watched a Ken Burns documentary, and I and I remember reading the moment where they, uh, where Meriwether Lewis walked up to the top of the Lem High Pass, so and looked over the Lem High Pass and realized at this moment that somebody said that the geography of hope gave way to the geography of reality. Hmm. One of the commentators said that, and I it hit me about the idea of geography and hope and reality, and and really the the story of Lewis and Clark is a story about a three hundred year long uh, journey that starts generations and generations before Lewis and Clark, where people were trying to find a water route that would connect Europe to Asia. So if you think back, all everybody wanted to find that water route. That's economic vitality was built on your capacity to move raw material over seawater because it's easier to move it than it is over land. So when the European explorers discovered America, like nobody was there, right? Like 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 they discovered it. Right. What they realized, it took them 100 years to figure out that what they discovered and what they'd stumbled upon that was, all, was a whole civilization and lots of people and lots of resources that was just in the way. They were trying to get through the darn thing. Hmm. So the mental model was, this is in the way, and we're going to do anything we can to get through it. So even 300 years later, when we've got a brand new nation, the United States of America in the 1800s, um, what Thomas Jefferson was trying to figure out was, if we could own the water route that would go across this nation, so connect the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico, like through the Missouri River and the Mississippi River, then that would be like owning Amazon today. It would be like it'd be like owning the internet today. You would own <laughs> the capacity to for people to buy and sell and transfer goods. So the core of discovery was about discovering a water route that everybody knew was there. So when Meriwether Lewis steps over the Lemhi Pass between Montana and Idaho and sees the Rocky Mountains, hmm. three hundred miles of mountains in his way, he realizes the maps were wrong. There is no water route. Hmm. And that he had to think differently. He was a water guy. They were a river team. And they now had to stop canoeing and face mountains. And the question of the book is, how do you canoe over mountains? And the answer is, yeah, don't. Yes. If you're going to keep going, you've got to reframe your journey into something more than canoeing. And that's where the church is today. I think a lot of churches today are built on the assumption that tomorrow will be more of today. That if we were an expert in the past, we'll be an expert in the future. Mm-hmm. And if we just try hard enough, if we just paddle hard enough, mm-hmm. well, we'll keep moving. Well, it doesn't do you any good to paddle if you run out of water. Mm-hmm. And so the terrain has changed. And that change of terrain is really this wild, dramatic shift in the Western world from a Christendom model mm-hmm. where Christianity has a cultural advantage to a post-Christendom world that is much more like the first church but is really different for us. Yeah, I think that I think that's great. I've I've heard folks, um, and I think this this seems true to me that we've we've been in a post Christendom era, probably since the '60s, and so we're probably 50, 60 years into the the, the terrain shifting, and yet it does seem that perhaps the church is still trying to canoe, yeah, st- yeah, still yeah, trying yeah. to find that that water passage, um, and. We just have to adjust to the reality. The mission hasn't changed, yep. but uh, the way we go about that mission is is going to need to shift. I love it. I thought it was a, a great analogy. I think people will get uh, a lot a lot out of it. And that's really what what gets us into adaptive leadership. Yep. And so, how how are some of the ways that Lewis and Clark how did how did they manifest this adaptive leadership versus Management. So, so adaptive leadership is built on this notion. Um, it, what Heifetz and Linsky and their colleagues did is said this: there's there's basically two ways of thinking about attacking a problem. One is what's called a technical problem, 
And that doesn't just mean technology. It means that a technical problem is solved by an expert. Mm. So if you've got really, really tough whitewater and you have an expert river rafter, you can navigate through the whitewater. It, it's, it's significant, like, um, but an expert can solve it. So a hard bypass is a technical problem, right? Yes. You don't want to just have anybody doing that, right? Right. Um, a technical problem is that an expert can solve it. An adaptive challenge means there's no expertise to solve it. Mm. That your organization, your church, there's no best practices. That what you really now have to face is the capacity that an adaptive challenge is. It requires learning. It starts with saying, I don't know how to solve this. And it always results in loss. Hmm. So when Lewis and Clark are, have been sent by, and the Corps of Discovery have been sent to discover a water route, hmm. what they discover is there isn't a water route. So what they should have, I mean, think about it, just logically, they should have turned around and gone home. <laughs> right. right? Go tell Jefferson as soon as possible there isn't any water route. Change your entire finance, your economic policies for the United States and all your expectations. Right. But they didn't. They kept going. So the question is, why did they keep going? And the answer is because they had actually a deeper core value. Um, they were men of the Enlightenment. And at those moments, leaders go to your core values. And their core value was built on the notion that the growth of human knowledge would lead to the growth of human happiness. Now, as a Christian, I might quibble with parts of that or want to <laughs> debate that. But what, you, what we notice is... They went to a core value. So what they did is they decided that the core of discovery was no longer about discovering a water route. It was about discovering a whole new world. Hmm. And that whatever they would discover, and they had a hint about that, and they'd thought about that, but now that became their central mission. Hmm. So what's good for us, and for me, I think about as a Christian who's in leadership, is in moments of deep change, the most important thing is to have your deepest core values solid to be really clear about what will never change, mm. but then be really blunt about how hard it is to change everything else. Yeah. That it's not just changing methods, that it's literally letting, if, if you're the guy who came on the on the trip because you are so good at whitewater navigation and river rafting and canoeing, you even built the canoes with your own hands, and we now tell you, hey, we don't need you anymore. Hmm. We're going to put you on the back of a horse. And frankly, what we'd like you to do is, oh, move move around some of the gear. Right. That's a dramatic <laughs> loss of identity. of, And that's where a lot of people in the church are today. Like, And, and one of the reasons you, that the church still struggles with a Christendom mindset is because we were in Christendom for 1,700 years. Yes. And all of our institutions, including seminaries like ours, right. were shaped around to help, support that to support that right right, right. so th that's the the most dramatic thing to realize is it, the the world has shifted but we haven't because our way of training people and developing people still assumes this old christendom model and we could talk about what we mean by that too yeah that'd be great i love that that when when the terrain shifts into the unknown that we have to adopt a, a posture of learning and then just do business with the reality that there's going to be loss, that we yeah. cannot just continue yeah. the way that we always have and expect it to work yeah. to achieve the, the goals that we all have. Yeah. And, and that, that idea of knowing our, our deepest core values yeah. and our identity as explorers yeah. more so than, than just a, a whitewater rafting expert yeah. is great. I did want to talk some about adaptive leadership because I know that that's your forte. Mm -hmm. And so speak a little bit to... Maybe just the average believer out there who, who's not necessarily in a paid position of leadership or maybe hasn't been through seminary, but knows the scriptures, is mature in their faith, wants to share their faith. What is it that, that they need to realize about adaptive leadership that can help them navigate um, moving forward off the map? So, so I would often think about it this way. The people in the pew... If you just think of it like a church leader. So you, you, we, our mental model of church is usually some person up front, oftentimes a guy, right? Right. Who's up front speaking to a group of people who are experiencing teaching and are supposed to go out and live that out in the world. What's changed is that for a lot of years, the assumption was the way you did that was basically invited people back into church. 
Like, yes. like, like Christendom assumed, like one of the parts that I have, I have a copy of the Los Angeles Times from December 1963. Um, I have it because of all kinds of interesting reasons why it got passed down to me. One of which was it had an article on the Hollywood Presbyterian Church, which then in 1963 was the largest Presbyterian church in the country. That it had almost 9,000 members and that I served there um, when it had about 4,000 members. And today it has basically under 1,000 members, hmm. about 600 in worship. It's, it's a vibrant church, but it dramatically changed time. But the reason I kept it is because in 1963, the Los Angeles Times would publish for you a week's worth of daily Bible readings. Wow. So if you can remember the day when even the Los Angeles Times helped you with your morning quiet time. Yes. Then you can remember Christendom because Christendom wasn't that everybody was a Christian. Billy Graham's crusades were an all-time high in 1963. People needed to come to Jesus. But Christianity supported was supported by culture. The Christianity had a home court advantage. A a favored status, I think, is how you refer to it. Everybody it was like that everybody so every pastor thought what I need to do is inspire people to come be part of our community and we'll reach out and inspire more people. Well, today in the pew, you have a whole bunch of folks who are saying, that's not the way people think about the world. They're, they're not, my colleagues aren't just looking for a good church to go to. My no. my friends aren't just assuming that I'm going to raise my kids in a church. Um, m- most of the people that I work with every day has questions about Christianity or confusion about it. We don't have a home court advantage. We're some people would say we're in exile, right? Right. So you have this totally different place we're in. And this is where I think people in the pew are actually closer to the missional reality than many people who were trained where, you know, um, for this old day. So one of my friends likes to always talk about the fact that at the moment of crisis, you don't rise to the occasion. You default to training. Hmm. Well, most pastors were trained for preaching, programming, and pastoral care. Hmm. So we preach to whoever shows up. We program for the felt needs of those people so they'll invite their friends. And we give pastoral care when they're in crisis so they know we care about them. Well, what happens when the world isn't interested in showing up? That they won't come to our programs even even if they tell us they want them. Right. And pastoral care, people are now out of the hospital before we even know they're there. So mm-hmm. so in this rac- radically changing world, what does it mean to lead a faith community? What does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to disciple people? And what kind of discipleship do you need? That's dramatically different than the way most people were trained. And that requires us changing the way we form Christian leaders and then changing the way we form Christian communities as well. Yeah, I think that that's great. And uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on this because it's interesting. You said 1963 for that particular copy of the LA Times. And uh, that really syncs with that idea of even into the 60s, you could have this expectation. But since then, and with I would say with each passing year, it does seem like we have less and less of a home court advantage. For a lot of believers, I think there is a sense of panic or we're in crisis or we're losing ground and yet like you said earlier in some ways we're reverting back to the roots of christianity that you know christianity did not have home court advantage in the first century Mm -hmm. in the second century and even into the third century Mm -hmm. so what i what i think a lot of people see as as negative that we're losing this home court advantage do you see any silver lining in this do you see it actually being perhaps Mm -hmm. even a good thing yeah so so i i don't think of it as bad or good i think of it as the geography of reality right right and so the reality is how do you be faithful in the in the season that you're in so um i don't look at i I think that every season has different problems and that you go you could do a whole church history on what was faithfulness and what and what was you know lack of faithfulness in every season? I think the challenge we have today is um, today's problems are mostly built on yesterday's successes. It's a systems theory approach. What it means is the reason why we have a hard time reaching our neighbor is for most of us reaching meant reaching over seawater. Right. Right. So missions didn't mean. A congregation needs to be missional. It meant missions needed to be a congregation needs to take good mission offerings and send it to and send specific 
heroes called missionaries out into groups of people. And um, I worked for a parachurch where I was a youth missionary. Um, it meant that all the people in the pews job was to write checks to support me so that I could go reach youth. Well, to think about our, the early church, it was a witnessing missioning, missional community. Well, that means it changes the entire expectation of who comes, who's part of it, what are they signed up for, what do they expect when they get there, what does it mean to be part of a community, what does it mean to take baptismal vows. And for some of us, we'd say this does take us back to our roots. It's more real. But, right. but that's just the biblical metaphor for that is pruning. <laughs> right. That's a painful, again, it's about learning. I don't know how to do this. I was trained for this other day. It's about right. loss. Yes, I'm going to have to help people deal with the fact that they're letting go of things that are really dear to them and comfort they're used to. And Yeah, I, I hope that this does encourage people um, because you're right. I think the typical believer who has a vision for sharing their faith and making disciples even though they may not have been through any kind of formal education, perhaps they've just been mentored or discipled in a personal relationship, but they can still have this idea that they need to be an expert or they need yep. to achieve some level of expertise before they're really qualified, yep. before they can really move out. And part of what you're saying is that no one's an expert in this new world that, that we've moved into. All of us need to think of ourselves as learners and the expertise is going to happen as we move forward. So Lewis and Clark are going to learn about the Rocky Mountains only by moving into the yep. Rocky Mountains and figuring out what's on the other side. Even though they've got some great competencies, you talk about having competencies on the map, yep. and that that's really the foundation for having adaptive leadership ability once you go off the map. Yep. So can you say a little bit about that, that technical competency mm -hmm. that's on the map and how people yep. can it's not either or but how can people really be developing themselves now yeah so so let me say this in two ways one is there actually are a group of experts okay in uncharted territory they're just not us yeah so yes yeah so so Continue. and so what's important about that is if i'm leading a group of people who are very comfortable with uh, river rafting and they came on a canoeing journey and i tell them hey there's a group of mountains in front of us and their mental model is like Lewis and Clark's. Oh, we're really good at mountains. We lived in Virginia. Right. <laughs> and they're thinking Shenandoah Mountains, which are beautiful mountains, by the way. But they're really different. The San Gabriel's standing behind us are higher than the Shenandoah Mountains. Wow. That they have no mental model for 14,000-foot peaks that and a range of mountains that go 300 miles that will have 60 miles of hip-deep snow. They're thinking their mental model is off. What they need is to go to recognize you need to be competent enough on the map in the familiar terrain for a group of people to follow you off the map. And when you look at them and say, I don't know, and we're gonna learn and we're gonna face loss, they trust you that you're wise, that you're caring, that you're not being reckless, that you are have the capacity to learn, and that you're also humble enough to learn from the experts who are there. In mm. our world today, this the best good news we have is that the place where the church is growing the most, both in the West and in other parts, is in the global church that didn't go through Christendom. Right. So when you start realizing that it is churches, people of color, that it is the immigrant church, that it is the oftentimes the African American church, it's the Church of the Global South, where people are experiencing incredible amounts of growth. Um, I mean, what an elder does in Kenya, in the mm. Presbyterian Church, is really different than what an elder does in Kansas or in Pasadena in the Presbyterian Church. And when you realize there are these other models, then those of us who have been the dominant culture now become learners and collaborators. And so for Lewis and Clark, this was found in the person of Sacagawea. Um, we often hear her name said Sacagawea. Mm -hmm. um, but the way her name was written in the journal was either with K's or uh, with K's or hard G's, Sacagawea. So I think if nothing else, we should try to give her back her name. Sure. She, they probably heard the way she said it. When they went over the Lemhi Pass, she wasn't lost. This was her home territory. Mm -hmm. And she was the one who led them to the Shoshone tribe. And it was the Shoshones who embraced them as friends and gave them horses 
and then gave them another person to help lead them through the mountains. Mm. And I think there's a model here for those of us who were raised in the dominant culture of Christendom to recognize that God has raised up all kinds of people around us if we can be humble enough and open to learning and collaborate in new ways. But it means really rethinking what is a church leader, what does leadership look like, I mean, they were captains, Lewis and Clark. We are Reverend Dr. Bolsinger. You know, they were, I mean, Meriwether Lewis was tutored by Thomas Jefferson. I have a master of divinity and a doctor of theology. It's hard to lay down some of those trappings and positional pieces and become a learner again, working collaboratively with people who didn't experience the privileges of Christendom to reinvigorate the church. I love it, man. I love it so much. If if the church is going to go into these uncharted places, and, and we're not, again, we're not talking about necessarily going overseas, no. overseas missions. We're talking about moving into parts of our culture and our society into neighborhoods where the church does not currently have a strong presence, a strong foothold, then it will not be business as usual yep. and we'll have to learn from the folks who are already there yep. and that's right in line with uh into the harvest which you know i think folks can probably see why i really loved this book and a lot of what you are artic- you are articulating because it is what i see as the reality uh, facing the church today so let's talk a little bit about this idea of loss that it's not so much maybe i'm not yeah. saying this exactly right but it's not so much that people resist change it's that they resist the loss that inevitably comes yeah. with change. And you mentioned it earlier, but you chaired a national commission for your denomination that spent two years uh, exploring an answer to the question, are the structures of history the best platforms for carrying our mission into the future? Yeah. And I wonder, how would you answer that question today? So I would say if they are adapted. And, and that adaptation is loss, is really hard. So so um, the I chaired this two-year commission in my denomination. I, I love being, I love the work we did, the people we did, all the work we did. We were given a charge to really rethink the entire polity, which is the way in which we're structured, so that we would be a post-Christendom missional denomination. When we got to the vote of Presbytery, however, the concerns of the moment that were uh, really about kind of the old power struggles that had lasted for a generation completely swamped the changes and nothing uh, was taken in. Like I experienced watching two and a half <laughs> years of work go down the drain as, as quick as you could take a vote on an electronic um, scoreboard. And it was powerful to me because what it hit me was you're not going to bring large change through structural decisions. Mm. You have to form people to be able to see the capacity and live into it. And so from there, I realized what my work has to be about is really about forming the leaders who can go into this uncharted territory, um, about how I work with the next generation and how I work with senior leaders, people even at my age, I'm 55, so I was trained in Christendom, but my job is to really be a bridge for the next generation that is gonna lead us into, it's their whole, they're gonna spend their whole careers in uncharted territory. My, my daughter's. 22 and got her first church job her entire ministry is going to be in this new world Um, and so i think it takes it requires uh, everybody to deal with the loss and particularly the loss for those of us who can remember what felt like the glory days our pews were filled our coffers were filled our um, reputation was big uh, we mm. took offerings and we sent money with heroes. I mean, mission mission work was sending thing, money over seawater, not having to cro- cross my sidewalk to m- connect to people who already have made up their mind that they're not interested in what I'm talking about. I mean, right. it's um, it's a it's a dramatically different world we're in, and it takes dramatically different leadership than we have usually trained people for. Yeah. So I ended up back at a seminary where I could basically work on leadership formation. Yeah, and I, I do want to talk about that some more here momentarily. So I guess I guess what I'm wondering is what are what are some of the canoes that we're going to have to let go of? Mm. Uh, and if you can just be as practical as you yeah. can, you you can. Yeah. So if the church has been in this era where if we're expert at navigating the river, Christendom, 
We've got these canoes. We, we've got our structure that's helping us navigate. It's working. And then we reach the end of the headwaters of the Missouri and the canoe no longer helps us move forward. What, yep. what are those, those real structures that you believe the, the church is going to have to yep. let go of so yep. that we can continue journeying yep. west? Yep. So let me, I'll give you three. I'll give you three that are really concrete and you, get, and you see them in the life of Lewis and Clark. Um, so that's why it's easy to pick up on. The number one is this notion that leadership is some solo person, some genius who is the leader, some person who is going to be the one who is God's called person. Even when we go back and look in scripture, even Jesus doesn't lead alone. He gathers a community around him. Moses has Aaron, right? The, every time you see a leader alone leading, they tend to get into trouble. So this notion of going back and recovering, you know, Paul and Barnabas in partnership together, um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, right? You these these partnerships. Lewis and Clark are a great example because they literally are known to us as Lewis and Clark, like one word. You can you can be in Lewiston, Idaho, and not know it was named after him, or you can be in Clark County, Kentucky, like I was walked by the statue of William Clark, went in and lectured on this material and had no idea that this Clark County was named after <laughs> William Clark. It points us to think, rethink models of leadership that have been too hierarchical and not communal and not nearly reflective of the New, of the New Testament. Mm. That's one. Mm. Uh, number two, I think the other one is the idea that leaders are always pre uh, prepared beforehand and are experts who then are commissioned to lead. Leadership is actually learned in the leading. Mm -hmm. So you can get technical competence. You, I can take you in. We do all the time. I can I can teach you how to do good exegesis and good, good homiletics. I can even put you in a class that teaches you preaching. Mm -hmm. But when you have to deal with the competing values of a congregation that is anxious about the gospel, about how to hold them as a what's called a holding environment as you talk about the demands of discipleship, that only is usually learned while you're in the midst of doing it. Right. So what we learn from Lewis and Clark is when they step over the Lemhi Pass, they no longer could function as the rigid military structure that they were. They were a military unit. They had to function like a community that included listening to Sacagawea mm -hmm. and giving a vote when they made a big decision about where the fort would be to Sacagawea and to York, their African-American slave. Hmm. So this radical reorienting of leadership and that leadership and leadership formation happens over a lifetime of leading, not as a pre-service experience. Right. Um, it's radically re it's helping us restructure even seminary education that I'm in. Yes. Those are those two. And, and I think the third one that I would talk about that is for most people of having to dramatically think about the changes of of, of what you have to let go of is the notion that um, institutional structures are built for the status quo. Institutional structures have to be built to create the safety for innovation. Hmm. Uh, the whole uh, I'm not an anti-institutional person. I wouldn't be at a seminary. Right. <laughs> but what I believe is what's happened to most institutions is they become about this about holding on and surviving. I would almost say it's it's endemic to the nature of organizations or yeah. institutions that very quickly self-preservation, yep. self-perpetuity becomes the thing, the, the number one thing, yep. which makes it really hard to innovate and move off the map because that's unknown. It might even be obvious that that's going to change things, that that is going to threaten the status quo. Right. So you're saying the third thing that we have to just come to terms with in terms of loss is, is that that the concept the purpose of an institution is to create a platform for innovation yeah or to put it in discipleship terms the the purpose of having a um, a tradition that is inherited from the saints mm -hmm. is so that every generation can um, bring the gospel anew to a new generation yeah. not so that we can try to make everybody live out the the past yeah um, and there's something about what, in, what some good folks at Duke often call traditioned innovation 
that we need to think about how we do more of that. So those are just three examples of, I think, the letting go the canoe of our expert of our solo leadership, letting go the canoe of our expertise before we lead, and yes, that is usually seen in our degrees and in our initials and in our debt load, <laughs> and, um, and then letting go of the canoe that assumes that institutional survival means faithfulness in the future. That's a big one, and I know part of why we started into the harvest is because we wanted to shrink our platform so that it did serve the mission, that we could be a little more in control of the things that we're doing, do they actually move us forward? Yeah. This, isn't, this isn't about growing an institution. Uh, this is about accomplishing the mission and, and calling more mm-hmm. people into it. And yet you, you need something. So we call it into the harvest. There's, there's no value in that, that name except as it helps people understand that we believe where the future of the church lies is not in our sanctuaries that, that exist right now, but we're gonna find new growth and we're gonna find that, mm-hmm. that new passageway off the map. We're gonna yep. find it in the harvest. Um, and you, you talk a lot in the book about the mission trumps, and mm-hmm. that's some of what I hear you saying yep. there in that third point. Yep. Yep. Yeah, when you start recognizing that our reason for being is to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's to ask the question, what does it mean to bring the kingdom of God and the will of God to every place on earth? Yeah. When we ask that question, we say we believe that for the church to be passed down, there needs to be communities that are bigger than any personality. That's what an institution, organization, Mm. a community does. Right. But it's to acknowledge that the purpose of that institution is not self-preservation. The purpose of that institution has to be about being the the foundation from which you can find um, the transformation of new innovation, of of wise new initiatives. I love it. I, I hope people. I hope people get excited about this. That mm-hmm. that expertise is going to ha- you know action. That this is a team endeavor. That our learning, our growth is going to happen yep. in the doing, and that we can really align, we should be aligning our institutions yep. based on what does further the mission and being willing to let go of yep. the things that don't. Um, you mentioned earlier where Fuller is taking yep. leadership development for the church, and you made a distinction between students and learners. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I right. said that exactly right. Tell us a little bit more yeah. about where you see the future of leader development mm-hmm. for the church global, mm-hmm. or maybe even the, mm-hmm. primarily the church here yeah. in North America, yeah. and how you see that there are these two different paths. Yeah. What will it look like? Yeah, so I'll give you just two quick examples that came out of our own experience of listening to people. So um, one is um, I have a pastor friend of mine who's in Hawaii, and he said to me, he invited me to come speak preach at his church and he said I invited you to come preach so that I could take you to dinner I said how great he goes I took you to dinner to tell you that I'm never sending anybody to Fuller ever again oh wow (laughs) maybe not as great (laughs) yeah he was one of my classmates so I said what do you mean he goes Todd here's the problem we're over here in Hawaii we think we're actually beginning to see the beginnings of of a movement that could be like a renewal the problem is that every church being started today is being started by some guy who runs a termite company Mm-hmm. Like there is something happening in the marketplace right. that is not happening in our churches. And I got friends in Silicon Valley who tell me the same thing. And mm-hmm. I have, and we have a Dupree Center for Faith and Work that is experiencing the same thing. That there is this amazing amount of work happening of Christians in the marketplace. There are entire groups at some of the largest tech companies in Silicon Valley where Christians are gathering to do discipleship at work because of the way, the, the demands of the workplace. Hmm. None. He, one of my friends said to me, none of us are going to go get a degree from Fuller. Like We're, we're not going to stop and get an MDiv. Right. We can't add, uh, a, a, add a master's in theology. doesn't actually help us. But we need training right now for what we're doing right now. And we, these are smart people. They're what I call educated. They want an educated but not an academic faith. Mm-hmm. So they ask, what can Fuller do for us? What could, right. How could you help us if we don't sign up for your master's degrees? And let's face it, we have a lot of people who still do. Like, right. like there's a lot of folks who still want and need MDivs and MAs and PhDs, and we offer those things to people. But there's a whole n- growing group of people who are saying, we want the resources of a seminary. We want an, a, a really rigorous theological resources made accessible to us t- to use right in the context that we are every day. Mm. That marketplace shift is a big shift. 
And the other one was the largest church in the Western Hemisphere is in Bogota, Colombia. And the leaders from that church, 100,000 members, they have 25,000 pastors they support around Latin America. They flew all night to be with us in a gathering where they said to us, we're having a revival and we need you to train us. Hmm. Their humility was stunning. I I thought they were going to say, we're having a revival so we don't need you. Like they said the opposite. They Hmm. said, we're having this revival and we need training. The problem is, is that the training we people can't afford your $40,000 master's degree. <laughs> right. We had 25,000 pastors already out there. Could you help us? And because of our Central Latino, which is so reputable, they came and talked to us about it. Hmm. So I think this, so what we've developed is the Fuller Leadership Platform, and it's just rolled out in its first uh, iteration in three weeks ago, oh, wow. where we're going to have two different products. And one of them is about, it's called Fuller Formation, and it's all formation resources for people in the church who want to grow in discipleship. And then there will be Fuller Equip that comes out this fall that is about developing rigorous courses, developing professional certificates that demonstrate the competencies people need for training and ministry. So Fuller Leadership Platform is the place where we're taking all the research and resources of Fuller and our partners and friends, and we're putting them accessible to people through an online platform that they can then use in relationships or connect them to relationships for mentoring. It's a relational digital platform. So hmm. so the Fuller Leadership Platform just started. And and actually, one of the things I can give you is a whole resource we developed on my book. And it's a training resource that people can use with their teams that um, takes you through Canoeing the Mountains and takes you through a video curriculum that people can use in their teams and they can learn together in a way that is much bigger than if I could you know, be in the room with them. Yeah. Right. How, how can people get access to that? Well, so the easiest way is you can send a text. You can send the word canoeing to 66866. <laughs> 66866. <Okay. laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you just send the word canoeing. And what you'll get is you just put in your name and your email and you'll get a s- bunch of slides from presentations that I do on this. You'll get a digital curriculum and an introduction to our leadership platform so and if you want to just poke around you can just look up the words fuller leadership platform you just google us and we're everywhere right and we already have hundreds of people signing up every day and we've got people more people coming every day and we've got folks who are going to be bringing us more material and um and and it's our way of contributing i mean we're still going to do and we're still committed to rigorous theological education and i mean i'm i'm a pr- product of fuller so i'm very proud of that but but we want to figure out how to make that more accessible in a world where more people need training even beyond their capacity to get degrees or higher ed I love it. And I think that that's, uh, it's great. I'm glad you're making that available to everyone, but certainly to our listeners. We'll put that in the show note, both the uh, the text number and canoeing. I had to spell check canoeing a few times because uh, I misspelled it. So um, we'll get that for our, our listeners. Fast forward 20 years from now, where do you see the church in America? Do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Where do you think things are headed? So I So I'm incredibly hopeful. I'm not very optimistic, but I'm hopeful. Um, I, I think that the pain of the next 20 years is going to be uh, pro, uh, profound. Hmm. When I, I Oftentimes when I speak on adaptive leadership, I'll have a younger pastor walk up to me and say, like, wait a minute, the way you're describing this, this could be like a lot of years. I said, oh, it'll be a couple generations. Hmm. Like it took 1,700 years for Christendom <laughs> to take root in the way it is. And we've been in post-Christendom for like 15 minutes. So... I think over the next 20 years or 30 years, I often think about my daughter's career. Um, I think her entire ministry, and she she feels called to be a pastor in a church, and she's already she's working in a church right now and will start attending seminary. I think their entire ministry is going to be one of change and disruption. So I think in one sense, we're going to watch a lot of wineskins get passed off. Yes. And, a, and what I'm looking for is not just new wine and new wineskins, but harvests vineyards new groups of new fruit that are going to take place in different ways so i'm very hopeful i believe the gospel's powerful and i think the spirit's alive i think it's going to be hard for those of us who were deeply invested in christendom to have to let go Mm -hmm. and i think that if the church the sooner we can engage and put our resources into this to the to these new forms of discipleship to these new emerging leaders to a more diverse church, to a more robust um, 
sense of leadership formation, the better it will be. What uh, What is the biggest lesson that you hope people take from your book? Um, we are living in a new world. And if we keep leading for the old world, it will be frustrating, exhausting, and discouraging. Hmm. But if you can literally let yourself enter into the adventure, you can get new life. Hmm. If you can allow yourself to say, what would it be like? So one of my favorite examples in the book is Thomas Jefferson. Um, for all of his problems, and there's a million problems with Thomas Jefferson, he loved the West. He had more books on the American West than anybody. Hmm. He had more vision for the West than everybody. He's the one who I'm sure her told Meriwether Lewis, look, even if there's not a water route, keep learning, right? He was so excited about it. He, point, he built Monticello facing west. He never traveled more than 50 miles west hmm. of Monticello. I think there's this whole generation. He was 60 when he hmm. sent out Lewis and Clark. He made sure they were well cared for, equipped, supported, protected, paid for. He kept their memory alive when everybody thought they were dead. He made sure they got paid when they got back. He captured all of the learning and it became part of American consciousness. And that for all of the problems, and there's a lot of them about westward expansion that I don't minimize, there was something about the reforming of a hmm. mental model of it that made us into a pioneer nation. And I think we need more of a pioneer church. And if we can figure out a way to learn the lessons of the past where we're not dominant with the people that we um, come in contact with, we come in humbly and learn. If I think if we can learn to be humble and open to change, I think the church could be renewed in a whole new way. That's exciting. Well, friends, I do believe that in some ways we've reached the end of the river route, but we have not reached the end of the journey by a long shot. There's There's much to explore off the map, but we're going to have to approach it differently. And that's one of the reasons why I so appreciated Todd's book, Canoeing the Mountains. We'll also provide a link for that in the show notes. Would absolutely encourage you to pick up a copy and take advantage of this curriculum that Todd is, is making available to us. How can people best uh, connect with you if they want to learn more about your work? Yeah, mostly here through Fuller. So just um, I'm, I'm uh, one of the people that leads the Fuller Leadership Platform and my last name, Bolsinger at fuller.edu is still the best way to get me. Outstanding. Well, Todd, thanks for being with us today. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, my too. It's my too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. One of the best ways you can partner with us to grow our community is to share this podcast with your friends. Whether it's word of mouth or sharing our content on social media, we need your help to spread the message. Thanks for being part of our family. Together, we're bringing discipleship into the digital age.